Hello, campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my serious crime scale, with 1 being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. This episode is rated a 3. Now, I do want to give you a heads up that although this episode has a serious crime scale rating of three, it still includes some sensitive and controversial content, specifically involving race and racial discrimination. You see, at its surface, this story involved three black college students, one who was arrested for robbery of a local bakery, and two who were arrested for the assault of an employee at that bakery. But at its core, there is much, much more to this story, including ongoing legal litigation spanning nearly six years and accusations of deeply rooted racism in a college town. This is the story of Oberlin College and how it recently agreed to pay Gibson's Bakery, a local staple of the Oberlin community for over 100 years, a total of $36.59 million for damages and compensatory fees. This episode is titled Bakery versus College. So without further ado, let's get started. On November 9, 2016, shortly before 5 p.m., Oberlin College student Elijah Aladdin walked into the Gibson's Bakery and Candy Store in Oberlin, Ohio. At the bakery, Aladdin began shopping for bottles of wine. The bakery's website shows that the establishment sells not only all sorts of baked goods like, you know, cookies and pastries and breads, but it also sells chocolates and wine as well. While inside the store, though, Aladdin ended up concealing two bottles of wine under his shirt or coat, but he proceeded to take a third bottle to the checkout counter. According to an Oberlin police report, Alan Gibson Jr., an employee working at the family-owned bakery, physically saw the student do all of this. He knew the student was hiding bottles of wine and trying to shoplift. So when the student approached the counter and tried paying with a fake South Carolina ID, it ended up really being fake, by the way, Gibson noticed that not only was Aladdin attempting to steal wine from the bakery, but he also appeared too young to actually purchase the alcohol in the first place. Alan Gibson then confronted Aladdin and told him he knew he was hiding wine under his shirt. He then advised Aladdin to stay put, not to leave, because he was calling the police. But, of course, Aladdin wasn't just going to stick around and be caught red-handed when the cops showed up, so he attempted to leave the establishment. This led Alan Gibson, then, to take out his phone and try to snap a picture of Aladdin, but Aladdin became aggressive and ended up trying to slap Gibson's phone out of his hand, which caused the phone to strike Gibson in the face, according to the police report. 
At this point, Aladdin began to run toward the back of the store as he threw the two bottles of wine he had with him to the floor. Alan Gibson then tried to take matters into his own hands and he attempted to detain Aladdin himself. But Aladdin became violent, according to the police report, and he shouted, quote, don't touch me, end quote, as he began then hitting and grabbing Gibson in retaliation. When Aladdin hit him, Gibson, apparently Alan Gibson, then yelled for his father, David Gibson, who was working in the back room of the bakery, and Alan Gibson instructed his father, or someone, to call police. When David Gibson emerged from the back room, he immediately noticed the altercation taking place. David Gibson said he witnessed Aladdin push Alan into one of the shelves in the bakery, ultimately knocking over several items off onto the floor. At this point, David Gibson attempted to intervene and he asked Aladdin to stop. But according to David Gibson's testimony in the police report, Aladdin grabbed David Gibson's hand and he bent back several of his fingers. Then, in the midst of the scuffle, Aladdin was able to get away. He exited the store and took off across the street where he met up with two female students who had initially gone into the bakery with him. Alan Gibson, though, I'm not sure what he was thinking at this point, to be honest. I mean, I would have probably just stayed put and waited for police to arrive, but that's not what he did. So Alan Gibson decided to chase after Aladdin, and when he caught up with him, he again tried to detain Aladdin himself. But the police report notes that Aladdin once again became violent, knocking Alan Gibson to the ground, and then Aladdin went to the ground too, but stayed on top of Gibson, and he began punching and hitting Gibson. And now that Alan Gibson was down, the two female students jumped in as well, and they too began punching and hitting Gibson in the head and the face and the body, according to the police report. Gibson later told police that at one point, Aladdin allegedly stated, quote, I'm going to kill you, end quote. The next thing Gibson knew, police officers were on the scene and pulling the three students off of him. When it was all said and done, Gibson suffered several abrasions and some minor injuries, including a swollen lip and a small cut on his neck. According to the official police report, officers who arrived to the scene interviewed several witnesses, including Alan Gibson, his father, David Gibson, and a cashier working at the bakery by the name of Brent Gingery. Gingery's story, from what he witnessed, was basically the same as both Alan's and David's, and the police report notes that Gingery, quote, had little else to add in the way of any new facts, end quote. However, the police report also notes that several other individuals who were present at the scene at the time of the incident began saying that Alan Gibson was the aggressor and that the student didn't do anything wrong. But I think it's important to point out that those witnesses only saw what happened outside of the bakery, not inside before Alan Gibson chased Aladdin across the street. The police report also states that those same witnesses, quote, were initially interfering with officers attempting to gain control of the situation, end quote. After conducting interviews with several people at the scene, the responding officers believed there was enough probable cause to place all three people under arrest, all three students, Aladdin and then the two other females, who were all three black Oberlin College students. Once in custody, the two females were identified as Endia Lawrence and Cecilia Whetstone. The three suspects were then taken to the Oberlin Police Department, where they were booked without incident. Lawrence and Whetstone were booked for assault, but released on a $1,000 bond each. Aladdin was booked for one count of robbery and then transported to the Lorraine County Jail, where he was held until his arraignment. The police report concludes with, quote, this matter should be considered closed, end quote. 
But y'all, this matter was far from over. Because let me tell you about the immediate backlash that started less than 24 hours later in the town of Oberlin, Ohio. According to an article in the Oberlin Review, Oberlin College's student newspaper, many local community members and students had a problem with the actual police report itself. For starters, it included only testimonies from members of the Gibson family and their employees. You'd think that testimonies from the three students in question, as well as from other patrons inside the bakery, would be included in the report, but they were not. Also, the police report notes that Alan Gibson said he did not engage in punches or physical violence with Aladdin. He instead said that he simply grabbed Aladdin to stop his aggression and to keep him from leaving the store with stolen merchandise. But one Oberlin College student who was present at the bakery and saw everything unfold, Andy Golzer, claimed that Gibson was the aggressor and that he is the one who escalated the physical altercation, not the other way around. Golzer told the Oberlin Review, quote, Aladdin was literally just standing there, and Alan Gibson comes running from the back of the store screaming, shoplifter, and grabs him. The kid is like, get off me, I'm not doing anything. At this point, people in the store are starting to yell, get off him, what are you doing? End quote. So because of the varying accounts of what actually happened, and because students were angry and frustrated with how the situation not only went down, but also how police handled it, Many students and Oberlin College staff, including deans and professors, gathered in protest outside of Gibson's Bakery the next day on November 10th, 2016, and again the next day on November 11th. At the protests, Oberlin College faculty, staff, and students accused Gibson's of racially profiling the three students in question, and protesters handed out hundreds of flyers that claimed the bakery had a long history of racist behavior. Um, side note, in case you haven't picked up on it yet, the owners of the bakery, the Gibsons, are white. Anyway, according to court documentation, the flyer said that Gibson's Bakery is, quote, a racist establishment with a long account of racial profiling and discrimination, end quote. The flyer also encouraged customers to avoid Gibson's Bakery altogether, saying, quote, Today, we urge you to shop elsewhere in light of a particularly heinous event involving the owners of this establishment and local law enforcement, end quote. The flyer further identified 10 competitor business, where the demonstrators urged Gibson's bakery customers to shop instead. I actually included a screenshot of this flyer on my Instagram account, so be sure to check that out. Now, one person in particular who attended the protest in front of the bakery was Meredith Raimondo, the then vice president and dean of students at Oberlin College, and she got a lot of flack because of it. Court documentation alleges that she was the one who actually distributed the defamatory flyers to Oberlin students, faculty, staff, and even the public and media. Raimondo also was accused of raising her fist in support of the demonstration while shouting defamatory statements into a bullhorn. The same day the protest started in front of the bakery, on November 10, 2016, Oberlin College's Student Senate passed a resolution calling for the college to terminate its contracts with Gibson's Bakery. You see, Gibson's has been a staple in the Oberlin community for well over a century. Court documentation notes that David Gibson's great-grandfather started the business in 1885, and it has been at its present location in downtown Oberlin since 1905. Since then, the bakery has been family-owned and operated from generation to generation. In 2016, both David Gibson and his son, Alan Gibson Jr., worked and operated the business. 
David Gibson's father, Alan Gibson Sr., remained the primary owner, from what I gather, until he passed away earlier this year in 2022. According to a lawsuit filed by Gibson's Bakery in November 2017, as part of the bakery's tenure as a respected business in the town, Gibson's obtained a, quote, long-time contract with Bone Appetit Management Company for the supply of baked goods to Oberlin College. Bone Appetit Management Company is a food services subcontractor for Oberlin College, end quote. So, for several years, Gibsons and Oberlin had a steady working relationship, and like I said, they had that contract. But the Senate, then, the Student Senate, after all of this happened, passed that resolution to terminate that contract. So, after the student resolved to terminate the contract with Gibsons, that business relationship was basically shattered. The Oberlin Review reported that the Senate resolution also called on the then-president of Oberlin College, Marvin Krislov, as well as the then-vice-president and dean of students, Meredith Raimondo, including other college administrators and faculty, so they called on all these people, to basically condemn the treatment of students by Gibson's Bakery. Both Krislov and Raimondo responded to the Student Senate resolution in a college-wide email on November 11, 2016. So now I'm going to read you part of that email, but fair warning, it is kind of lengthy. So that email read in part, quote, Regarding the incident at Gibson's, we are deeply troubled because we have heard from students that there is more to the story than what has been generally reported. We will commit every resource to determining the full and true narrative, including exploring whether this is a pattern and not an isolated incident. We are dedicated to a campus and community that treats all faculty, staff, and students fairly and without discrimination. We expect that our community businesses and friends share the same values and commitments. Accordingly, we have taken the following steps. One, Dean Meredith Raimondo and her team have worked to support students and families affected by these events and will continue to do so. Two, Tita Reed, Special Assistant for Government and Community Relations, has reached out to Mr. Gibson to engage in dialogue that will ensure that our broader community can work and learn together in an environment of mutual respect free of discrimination. We will continue to work on these matters in the coming days to make sure that our students, staff, and faculty can feel safe and secure throughout our town. End quote. So that was the email, part of the email that they sent in response to the student resolution calling to terminate Gibson's Bakery, the contract with Gibson's Bakery. So I also want to mention here that the lawsuit filed by Gibson's Bakery alleges that when the student senate called for that termination, the Department of Africana Studies encouraged the senate to do so and then publicly praised the senate's actions after the fact. According to the lawsuit, the Department of Africana Studies posted to its public Facebook page, quote, Very, very proud of our students. Gibson's has been bad for decades. Their dislike of black people is palpable. Their food is rotten and they profile black students. No more. End quote. However, according to both the lawsuit and an article in the Washington Post by Isaac Stanley Becker, the Oberlin Police Department did look into the racist allegations. In their investigation, though, they discovered a lack of racial profiling and explained that out of 40 adults arrested for shoplifting at Gibson's Bakery in a recent five-year period, only six of those 40 people were African-American or Black suspects. Regardless, three days after that email response from the president and dean of students, the college's catering contract with Gibson's was suspended on November 14, 2016. The lawsuit brought by the bakery in 2017 alleged that the contract was terminated at the instruction of Raimondo. 
The lawsuit goes even further, though, and alleges, quote, on or before November 14, 2016, Vice President Raimondo approached the Oberlin College Director of Dining Services, Michelle Gross, and demanded that she instruct Bon Appetit to cease from engaging in any business with Gibson's Bakery, end quote. The lawsuit further claims that Michelle Gross was reluctant to terminate the contract at first, but nevertheless did so because she felt pressure from administration to terminate it. The lawsuit alleges that this resulted in extreme emotional distress for Gross, which caused her to, quote, take a leave of absence and then early retirement, end quote. Now, I know I've mentioned this lawsuit filed by Gibson's Bakery a lot, and this lawsuit includes some damning and controversial allegations against Oberlin College and its officials and representatives. So I'll get to that lawsuit soon and explain more specific details about it, including, you know, the exact charges sought. But notice that it wasn't filed until November of 2017, a whole year after the shoplifting incident occurred. That's because so much stuff happened in that year, or allegedly happened, which sparked the lawsuit in the first place. And so that is what I want to discuss now. So moving on with our timeline, after Gibson's contract was terminated by Oberlin College just a few days later after the shoplifting incident occurred. So about a week after Oberlin canceled its contract with Gibson's Bakery, David Gibson allegedly met with President Chris Lobb and Tita Reed, both of whom were mentioned in the college-wide email. During that meeting, Gibson advised the college representatives that, quote, defamation, boycotts, demonstrations, and refusal to do business with Gibson's Bakery was having a devastating effect on Gibson's Bakery and the Gibson family, end quote. Basically, his business was struggling, and sources say that Gibson's even had to lay off employees to stay afloat. So, as a result of their business struggles, David Gibson asked Oberlin College to retract the defamatory statements and reinstate the contract with Bon Appetit. The lawsuit claims that, in response to Gibson's request, the college basically attempted to blackmail him. So, those were my words, not the words of the lawsuit precisely, but you'll see what I mean, because they responded and said that they would consider reinstating business relations with the bakery on a long-term basis, but only if Gibson's Bakery would agree to not pursue criminal charges against first-time shoplifters, particularly if those first-timers were Oberlin College students. Of course, David Gibson did not agree to this, nor did he think it was a fair trade, and Gibson explained how it would basically give a free pass to so-called first-time shoplifters because it would be hard to distinguish whether it was actually somebody's first time committing the act or if it was simply their first time getting caught in the act, which, I mean, I definitely agree with. And side note, the college did end up reinstating the business contract with Gibsons a couple of months later in February of 2017, but not immediately when they were having these discussions. So in another meeting following this one, this time with David Gibson and Vice President Raimondo, the lawsuit alleges that Oberlin College insisted that Gibson's bakery call Raimondo, you know, the dean of students, instead of informing the police when students were caught stealing from the bakery. But again, David Gibson refused to agree with such a request. The lawsuit states that Gibson believed the policy was inconsistent with his core beliefs that institutions of higher education should be teaching its students not to commit crimes instead of, you know, sheltering and excusing their criminal actions. So needless to say, those meetings basically got them nowhere near a legitimate agreement or mutual resolution. 
Meanwhile, let's get back to the arrest of the three Oberlin College students. So soon after their arrests, Jonathan Allen pleaded guilty to the charge of attempted theft in open court. Shortly after that, all parties agreed to a plea bargain, including the prosecutor on the case, the three students, and the proprietors of Gibson's Bakery. The Oberlin Review reported that the plea bargain would have reduced all charges to misdemeanors, but ultimately, the Oberlin Municipal Court judge rejected the deal and forced the case to trial in county court. At the trial, the three students pleaded guilty to attempted theft and aggravated trespassing, and Aladdin additionally pleaded guilty to the underage purchase of alcohol. According to the Oberlin Review, the two female students, Endia Lawrence and Cecilia Whetstone, were each sentenced to 270 days in prison, and Aladdin was sentenced to 300 days. However, none of the students actually served time because the terms of the final plea deal suspended prison time in return for one year of good behavior. They also were sentenced to a fine and a restitution payment toward Alan Gibson Jr., you know, the person they got into an altercation with. At their sentencing hearing, court documentation notes that all three students acknowledged that the owners of Gibson's Bakery were within their legal rights to detain Aladdin following the attempted theft, and they also acknowledged that Gibson's Bakery owners' actions were not motivated by race. The three students also provided written statements that all said, in part, quote, I believe the employees of Gibson's actions were not racially motivated. They were merely trying to prevent an underage sale, end quote. Oberlin Police Lieutenant Michael McCloskey explained to the Oberlin Review that in the state of Ohio, store owners or employees can detain and arrest shoplifters. He said, quote, if they have probable cause to believe that someone is trying to take items from the store, they can legally, in a reasonable manner, detain them for a length of time until police get there to arrest the suspect, end quote. However, McCloskey added that he does not recommend this approach because it can often escalate the situation and lead to a violent altercation, um, exactly what happened in this case. Meanwhile, just because the court case was over and the students were arrested and charged, it didn't mean that the turmoil in the town of Oberlin or at Oberlin College was over. Actually, it was far from it. Many students, faculty, and staff from Oberlin College continued to boycott Gibson's bakery and uphold their belief that Gibson's and its employees were racist. Naturally, this led the bakery to experience what they referred to as quote-unquote economic sanctions, particularly from the protests in front of the store, as well as the dissemination of flyers with information both urging the public not to shop at the bakery and accusations of racism, and of course the suspended contract between Oberlin College and Gibson's Bakery. So yes, I can't imagine how much their business was hurting from nearly every angle. Plus, according to court documentation, Gibson's Bakery alleged that Oberlin College created a hostile community environment that resulted in harassment and threats against the business, its employees, and its owners. Court documentation alleged that David Gibson's residence was damaged on more than one occasion, which included one attempt to kick in his back door, resulting in severe structural damage. Another time, allegedly, Employees of Gibson's had their vehicle tires punctured, including the use of a drill bit being drilled into a tire. 
Furthermore, allegedly, students who continued to support and shop at Gibson's Bakery routinely experienced harassment and threats from those who boycotted the business. Apparently, those boycotting Gibson's would point a finger at those shopping at Gibson's, and they would point their fingers in a way that mimicked the use of a gun. However, I think what really drew the line in the sand was when 89-year-old Alan W. Gibson Sr., who is Alan Gibson's grandfather and David Gibson's father, he allegedly experienced harassment and threats at his apartment. Court documentation alleges that late one night, people went to his apartment and pounded on his door and windows while he was asleep. The grandfather, who feared for his safety, was startled from the noise and fell as he was trying to get out of bed and see who was banging on his door and windows. The fall, ultimately, caused life-threatening injuries, including a broken neck and multiple fractured vertebrae. Court records note that Alan Gibson Sr. required an extended hospital stay, as well as the use of a neck brace, for the rest of his life. So, now I think it's a good time to set the scene a little more and tell you a little bit about the climate and culture of Overland, Ohio, particularly during a time that the Republican-Democratic party lines were so far divided. If you remember, in November of 2016, Donald Trump had just been elected president of the United States, and political tensions were running super high, to say the least. Actually, Trump had just been elected on November 8, 2016, the day before the shoplifting incident occurred on November 9th. Moreover, Oberlin, Ohio has a population of about 8,000 people. It is located in Lorain County, about 31 miles southwest of the much larger metropolis of Cleveland, Ohio. As a community, Oberlin is comprised primarily of residents with liberal democratic views. According to several sources, including an article in the New York Times, Oberlin was once a stop on the Underground Railroad, and Oberlin College, founded in 1833, was one of the first institutions of higher education to admit black students. Oberlin College is a small, private, liberal arts institution with a high tuition rate in which the overall cost of attendance tops nearly $80,000 each year. Uh, yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) I know for a fact that my entire undergraduate career cost less than that. I mean, I'm kind of old, so it was back in the day, but still, that's a lot of money. Anyway, according to the reporting of Isaac Stanley Becker for the Washington Post, The city of Oberlin today has about a 15% black population, while Oberlin College has about a 5% black population of undergraduates. In the months leading up to the 2016 presidential election and this particular shoplifting incident at Gibson's, Oberlin College was going through some inner turmoil of its own. According to court records, Oberlin came under pressure in December 2015 for its treatment of African-American students, and a group of students had sent a lengthy letter, 14 pages to be exact, to Oberlin's board of trustees, the college president at the time, Marvin Krislov, and Oberlin's senior administrator, so they sent the letter to all those people. The letter included a long list of demands and asserted that, quote, Oberlin College and Conservatory is an unethical institution. In the 1830s, this school claimed a legacy of supporting its black students. However, that legacy has amounted to nothing more than a public relations campaign initiated to benefit the image of the institution and not the Africana people it was set out for, end quote. 
So as part of the students' demands in that letter, they wanted Oberlin College to offer guaranteed tenure to a black professor, Joy Correga, who was an assistant professor of rhetoric and composition at the time. According to court documentation, as well as an article in the Washington Post, instead of promoting Correga or awarding her tenure, they dismissed her from the college completely. This was because, apparently, Correga had posted statements to social media alluding to the belief that Israel was behind the 9-11 terrorist attacks and that Israeli and U.S. intelligence agencies fund ISIS. So this all happened between December 2015 and November 2016, when the school ultimately decided to part ways with Professor Correga, which obviously did not sit well with Oberlin's black student population. So naturally, students at Oberlin College were on high alert in the fall of 2016 amidst the college's own turmoil and then the U.S. presidential election. So now, since you've heard all of that backstory, all of this information, that brings us to the civil complaint filed by Gibson's Bakery in November of 2017 against Oberlin College and against the then vice president and dean of students, Meredith Raimondo. So I'm sure by now you can see why the bakery filed a lawsuit. I mean, if all of the allegations that I've been telling you about during this whole episode are true, then to me, it only makes sense for the business to file an official lawsuit. So ultimately, Gibson sued the institution and Raimondo for libel, slander, interference with business relationships, interference with contracts, deceptive trade practices, infliction of emotional distress, negligent hiring, and trespass. In a nutshell, though, the whole case basically hinged on whether or not college leaders facilitated the illegal defamation and economic boycott by helping students not only distribute the flyers, but basically also providing the resources to do so, such as the copy machines to print and copy the flyers. The lawsuit also alleged, though, that not only did Oberlin College assist the students in boycotting and protesting the bakery, but also that Oberlin allowed students to skip class and gain course credit to attend the boycott and protests. Yeah, I know, that's a lot. At the trial, however, when these allegations were brought up, Oberlin responded by arguing that the college itself was not responsible for views expressed by students. Their defense, then, focused on the First Amendment and free speech. They also maintained that the allegation of racism could not be classified as a defamation claim because it was a statement of opinion that could not be proven false. So according to the Cornell Law School website, in defamation cases for libel and slander, libel being written and slander being spoken, the plaintiff must be able to prove four things. One, a false statement was made that appears to be a fact. Two, publication or communication of the statement to a third party. Three, fault amounting to at least negligence. And four, damages or harm to the business or person who is the subject of the statement. So they have to prove all those things in a defamation lawsuit. The college also denied ever allowing students to skip class in favor of the protests, and they said that the only reason Meredith Raimondo, the dean of students, attended the protests was because that was literally in her job description to do so, as in to support the students, but also ensure the protests did not escalate into violence, which they did not, most likely because she was there. Now, as a person who works in higher education administration, specifically in student affairs, 
I can attest to the importance of college representatives not only supporting students in endeavors of free speech, but also attending those events or endeavors when necessary for the exact reason Raimondo gave in her testimony. However, (laughs) I cannot back her up or the college up on one particular thing that was brought up at trial. Apparently, court documents revealed how Raimondo and another college administrator expressed outrage after an Oberlin professor spoke out against the boycott of the bakery and the protests. In an email to the other administrator, Raimondo wrote, quote, Fuck him. I'd say unleash the students if I wasn't convinced this needs to be put behind us. End quote. Yeah, so I'll just let that sit with you for a moment. <laughs> but that was the email that she wrote to the other administrator. Anyway, regardless of how much Oberlin College defended itself and the actions of its students, ultimately a jury sided with Gibson's Bakery and its owners. According to the Washington Post, in June of 2019, the court found that the college had indeed libeled the bakery and owners and inflicted emotional distress on the owners. The court also found Raimondo responsible for libel, as well as for interfering with the business of the bakery. Initially, the court assigned $5.8 million to David Gibson, $3 million to his father, Alan Gibson Sr., and $2.2 million to the bakery itself. However, the whole legal battle was far from over, so this was in June of 2019. The Washington Post reported that an Overland College vice president, Donica Thomas-Varner, sent an email to the College Alumni Association that in part said, quote, We are disappointed with the verdict and regret that the jury did not agree with the clear evidence our team presented. The college and Dr. Raimondo worked to ensure that students' freedom of speech was protected and that the student demonstrations were safe and lawful, end quote. And that's really what the college was primarily focused on, the fact that the institution itself should not be responsible for the independent actions of their students. So then, on June 22, 2019, Oberlin College President Carmen Twilley Ambar spoke to NPR's Scott Simon about the verdict against the college. It's about four minutes long, but it provides some really good information, and so I'd like to play that interview in its entirety here. Oberlin College is in the middle of a controversy. In November 2016, Oberlin students began to boycott Gibson's, a local bakery and convenience store that's been in business in that college town for more than a century. The store accused an underage black student of shoplifting wine there. The student later admitted to stealing, but by then protests had already taken hold. Signs accused Gibson's bakery of racism. Oberlin stopped doing business with them for two months. The bakery says they lost business and were forced to lay off workers. So in 2017, they sued Oberlin, claiming libel and slander, among other things. A jury agreed and awarded the bakery a total of $44 million. The college is considering whether to appeal. Carmen Twilley Ambar is the president of Oberlin. President Ambar, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We should note you were not president uh, during the initial protests. No, I wasn't. I arrived about 10 months later. What are your concerns about this judgment? really that this is a First Amendment case about whether an institution can be held liable for the speech of its students and the actions of its students. And I think it's important whether you're a progressive or a conservative, uh, whether you are a small business owner or a large employer, 
about whether you can be held responsible for the speech of people who either work for you or are part of your community. And so that's really what this case is about. And I think it's important for us to talk about it in that way, even as we can get into some of the disputed facts around this issue. Well, I gather the the people, the family that own Gibsons makes the argument that the college actively supported uh, the demonstrators, uh, pizza, warm clothing, uh, and by canceling uh, business with them for a couple of months, uh, gave credence to the charges, even though, of course, as it developed uh, in court, uh, the young man was, was absolutely guilty of what was charged. So I think it's interesting because there's certainly disputed facts about what the college did or didn't do around the protest. You know, there may have been some individual faculty there that had their own perspective about it. But here's what I would say to folks. Um, The first thing to remember is that our policies require that our dean of students sort of be at the protest to make them safe and lawful. You know, ultimately what happened was there were no arrests at the protest, there was no property damage at the protest, there was no violence at the protest. And so sometimes what people perceive as support is what you do to de-escalate a protest. So your position would be that your dean of students would be there even if there were some Oberlin students who decided to have a, a Make America Great rally? Absolutely. The content of the speech isn't relevant. Uh, and she's supposed to be a liaison to the police. And in fact, the police contacted her staff to talk about uh, this particular protest as it was happening. So it would matter whether they were there for a Make America Great rally or whether they were there to you know, talk about some progressive cause. The content of the speech is not why we're there. It's there to be able to protect the community and to make it a lawful protest. Racism is an ugly charge. Can you see why the Gibsons were upset by it? Oh, absolutely. I Absolutely. If you're called a name that you don't believe is true, then I can absolutely see why the Gibsons were upset. Recognizing you're in the middle of this experience, do you, do you have any advice for uh, other schools on how to uphold the right of any member of the student body or the faculty to express themselves uh, without appearing that the university necessarily is signing on to it. Because, of course, there are, are student activists who say the university should sign on to it. Well, I think the conversations that we need to have with our students uh, around activism and to make sure that they know that even in their activism and even though some speech may be permissible, they do have to understand the impact of that speech. Uh, and that, that's a fair conversation to have that, you know, speech is permissible, but it can be hurtful to people. President Carmen Twilley-Ambar of Oberlin College, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Okay, so as you can see, the college was most concerned about the First Amendment rights of its students and how the college acts as a catalyst in ensuring students are given those rights. Basically, where do they draw the imaginary line between simply acting as a support versus acting as an accomplice? So, of course, the college appealed the verdict. On October 8, 2019, Oberlin College submitted an appeal to the Lorraine County Court of Common Pleas, but Gibson's Bakery filed a cross-appeal later that month. According to the Oberlin Review, the college's appeal was divided into three separate points of contention. First, that Gibson's had failed to prove that Oberlin met the standards for libel. Second, that there were irregularities in the trial, including omission of certain testimony. So I'll come back around to this particular point in a bit, so put a pin in that. And then third, 
that the damages awarded were excessive in relation to proof of harm provided by Gibson's. In the bakery's appeal, though, they argued that their constitutional rights were violated when the judge presiding over the trial implemented a cap on punitive damages, arguing that the cap would not sufficiently deter future behavior. Gibson's further alleged in their appeal that the judge improperly denied them an expert witness and incorrectly ruled on summary judgments. But an Ohio Court of Appeals ultimately rejected both Oberlin's and the bakery's appeals. On March 31st, 2022, so just this year, Judge Donna J. Carr wrote an opinion for the appellate court to uphold the trial court's decision. In her opinion, Carr explained the ruling, saying, quote, The sole focus of this appeal is on the separate conduct of Oberlin and Raimondo that allegedly caused damage to the Gibsons, not on the First Amendment rights of individuals to voice opinions or protest, end quote. The judge further explained that the defamatory flyer distributed at the protests proved to be an actionable state of fact rather than a constitutionally protected opinion. This means that the statement was indeed subject to libel laws. Regardless, a couple of months later, in May of this year, Oberlin College submitted an appeal to the lower court's decision to the Ohio Supreme Court, but on August 30th, the Supreme Court denied hearing the appeal. So, on September 8th of this year, just last month, it all came to an end, and Oberlin announced its decision to pay the full sum of $36.59 million to Gibson's Bakery. The college released a statement saying, quote, We are disappointed by the court's decision. However, this does not diminish our respect for the law and the integrity of our legal system. This matter has been painful for everyone. We hope that the end of the litigation will begin the healing of our entire community. We value our relationship with the city of Oberlin, and we look forward to continuing our support of and partnership with local businesses as we work together to help our city thrive, end quote. Also, FYI, the New York Times reported that Oberlin has an endowment fund of nearly $1 billion. This means that Oberlin will not be too greatly affected by the large payment to the bakery. Included in the college's public statement, it said, quote, Our careful financial planning, which includes insurance coverage, means that we can satisfy our legal obligation without impacting our academic and student experience. It is our belief that the way forward is to continue to support and strengthen the quality of education for our students now and into the future, end quote. But here's the thing. <laughs> Now that it's all said and done, and now that we officially have a resolution to this years-long dispute, I'm not sure there wasn't at least some truth to the allegations of racism against the bakery. I mean, no matter how high tensions were running from the election at the time, or how high tensions were running from the inner turmoil going on at the college, allegations like that don't just come out of thin air. Now, again, that is my perception, my perspective, me talking, not necessarily anything that was explicitly documented in source material. But what is documented in source material was some alarming accusations regarding Alan Gibson Jr., and I would be remiss if I didn't share those with you. And these might help explain why the college was so adamant about appealing and maintaining its right to support students. So according to the Oberlin Review, Alan Gibson Jr. had initiated a series of Facebook posts between 2012 and 2017. This is going to be a little hard to hear, so fair warning, but one of those posts read, quote, 
I wasn't racist ever, but this expletive and the way people treat me now because I am quote unquote white is racist and is making me racist. I don't owe a damn person a damn thing. If these lazy expletives want to start working, then they could earn their own money. That's what my family does for money, work, end quote. So remember when I talked about Overland College's appeal and how the institution alleged omission of certain testimony? Well, I'm pretty sure this is the testimony to which they were referring. Apparently, these social media posts were never presented at the actual trial. According to the Oberlin Review, the trial judge excluded this evidence from being presented at the trial because Alan Gibson Jr. was not a party represented in the defamation lawsuit. So, the evidence was sealed and not made available to the public until September of 2021, after the trial was over. So, I don't know, what do y'all think about this whole situation? It was a doozy of a story, that's for sure. So, Check out my social medias and leave me some comments and let's discuss it. What do y'all think? Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 37. As always, like I said, be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. So check me out on there and let me know what you guys think of this week's episode. I also have some TikToks going on. Still trying to get some more posts in, but y'all keep checking out those for some stories that you may or may not have heard before. Okay, well, you guys, that's all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Cassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.